Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of All My Movies, a new show here on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, and for those of you that are listening at home, a new podcast. This is so exciting for me because I wanted to do this idea for such a long time, and I really do have to thank Christian Harloff, everybody at SEN, everybody at Skybound for helping me to get this show off the ground. So before we get into the movie that we're going to be talking about today, which is The Dark Knight, I kind of want to give you an idea of what this show is. And when I say it's been a long time coming, part of it is that, you know, I have a movie collection that I've curated and cultivated over lots of different years and lots of different formats. And one of my favorite things is being able to walk over to the shelf where they are and look at them and think not just about the movies themselves, but about what they mean to me and, and what they mean as part of my life. And I think for a lot of movie fans, that is how you see movies. It's not just about the action or the stars or the directors or the Oscars. It's about when you saw it, where you saw it, who it ties into in your life, the memories that come with those movies. So that's what the show's gonna be. I take a lot of inspiration from a, a bit that Stephen Colbert used to do on The Colbert Report on Comedy Central. He had this thing called Better Know a District. His goal was to profile each of the congressional districts in the US, which of course there are hundreds of them, and every time he would do one, he would light up the board and there would be a little tiny yellow thing that would come up in this gulf of ones that he hasn't done yet. Of course, he didn't come close to finishing. Let's put California second up on the big board. Obviously, that's not my goal here. My goal here is, and this is a years-long project, is to be able to go through every single one of my movies and talk about it. And it's going to be kind of a combination. It's going to be where I saw the movie, what my memories of that movie might be. It's going to be information about the movie, about the production, and and how it impacted the way that movies are made. And, you know, some of these memories are going to be very deep and heartfelt, like some of the ones are going to be today. Some of these memories are probably going to be about the Black Friday sale that I picked that movie up at. I mean, you know, not every movie has big, great, deep meaning. But I think it's a fun chance to explore what these movies mean to me, and maybe to inspire you to think about what they mean to you. We're going to do all of them. We may not have one episode for every single movie. We might have to get like a meh block where I get 10 and talk about them briefly because not every movie deserves its own hour plus episode. Uh, But today's movie is definitely one of those movies that does because we are starting with 2008's The Dark Knight directed by Christopher Nolan. And when we were talking about getting the show started and trying to discuss, well, what's the first episode of the show going to be? Eventually, we landed on The Dark Knight, and it actually works out great for a few reasons. Number one, it's a great movie, and there's a lot to talk about. Number two, The Dark Knight was actually the very first Blu-ray that I ever owned. It's, it's this exact disc. So it makes sense in a show about profiling my movie collection to start with the first Blu-ray that was ever a part of my movie collection. The Dark Knight makes sense for a lot of reasons as far as the movie collection goes, but it also makes sense to kind of show you how this show ties into my memories of these movies because Batman as a character is one that I have been a fan of literally as long as I can remember. Leading up to Tim Burton's 1989 Batman film, I got super into it. I remember watching the reruns of Adam West and the Joker talking into a hot dog and doing a surf off with Batman. I think that may have been the first Batman thing that I ever saw. Of course, the movie, Tim Burton's movie, really kicked that into high gear. I was Batman for Halloween that year. I did a Joker pumpkin to enter into the school carving contest. In 1992, when Batman Returns 
came out, my mom was able to get tickets to a sneak preview of the movie. I think it was maybe the night before it came out, before they started doing screenings the night before movies came out. And it was like the biggest event of my young life. I was there. I had my Batman t-shirt on. There was somebody there from the newspaper. I got my picture in the paper. It was like my first brush with any kind of fame. It was so much fun. And I remember that night largely because I got to share it with my uncle, my Uncle Charlie. This is a name that you're going to hear a lot as we talk about the movies and, and my life with movies because so much of our bond was based around movies. It was something that we did together. We had a tradition uh, going into my teenage years, uh, even after I went to college, of every year around Thanksgiving or Christmas, whenever we got to see each other, we would go to one or two or three movies, as many as we could go to. It's something that bonded us together um, and, and something that I think back on and that I smile about. So all of these things... Batman, my uncle, Blu-rays, they all end up coming together here at the end. But before we get to that part, let's talk about the movie that is the focus of this episode, which is The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight was a sequel to 2005's Batman Begins, as I'm sure most of you probably know. But one of the things I think that we're going to return to is this idea of thinking back in hindsight. After Batman Begins came out in 2005, it was a moderate box office hit, but it was not a runaway smash. And Batman movies still had a bit of a stink on them because the franchise had famously run out of gas by Batman and Robin in 1997. People were kind of sick of Batman movies. He was a joke. And Batman Begins coming out and doing okay box office wise, but really well critically and with audiences, there was a question about whether or not there was going to be a follow-up to Batman Begins. I never said thank you. And you'll never have to. On July 31st, 2006, Warner Brothers announced that Christopher Nolan would be returning for a sequel to Batman called The Dark Knight, the first Batman movie to not have the word Batman in the title. But the even bigger news wasn't just that there would be a sequel to Batman Begins, it was who had been chosen to play Batman's most famous arch nemesis, the Joker. I called Heath and I said, you know, this is what's happening. They're, they're putting together the next Batman film and um, the Joker's going to be the villain and, you know, is out of interest. And I remember him, you know, it was like, there was no pause. It was like, absolutely, I want that. How do I, you know, what do we do? It seems like a no-brainer now, but not everybody was sold on this idea of Heath Ledger playing the Joker. He was fresh off of an Oscar nomination for Brokeback Mountain. So everybody knew that he was a great actor. But for the Joker, I remember all of the posts and the, the discussion boards and everyone saying like, oh, I think he's going to be great. He was great in Brokeback Mountain. And then, of course, Brokeback Joker memes and whatever were running around. There, there was no consensus on this. I think people were either curious and a lot of people were just not on board with this. I was not a huge, not necessarily not a fan of Heath Ledger at the time, but I hadn't seen him in a lot of stuff. I hadn't seen 10 Things I Hate About You at that point. I hadn't seen A Knight's Tale. I hadn't seen a lot of the movies that had brought him success. I'd seen him in Brokeback Mountain, which I thought he was brilliant in, and I had seen him in The Patriot for, with Mel Gibson, a Roland Emmerich movie that we will cover eventually on the show because it's sitting on my shelf right now. But there was still a lot of trepidation about Heath Ledger. And I think a lot of it was because Jack Nicholson had played the Joker so well in Tim Burton's 1989 Batman that people were questioning whether it should or could even be topped. And this is something that Heath Ledger himself struggled with. I think if, 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 if uh, Tim Burton was suddenly making 
the next Batman movie and he rang me up and asked me to play the Joker and fill Jack Nicholson's shoes, I, I wouldn't have done it because it's, what's the point? Uh, he did it perfectly for what Tim was creating. And But when Chris Nolan called me, I, I'd already seen the world he'd created and it was vastly different to Tim Burton's. And so therefore I knew that there was uh, an opportunity to for a fresh portrayal. With his cast in place, Nolan began production on The Dark Knight in April of 2007. But as we know about Christopher Nolan, his ambitions go above and beyond those of normal directors. He didn't just want to make the best Batman movie of all time. He wanted to make the biggest Batman movie of all time, which meant doing something that no feature had done at that point, which was to shoot a substantial part of it using IMAX cameras. Now, the IMAX format, which was introduced in Canada back in the 1970s, had really been used for what I call field trip movies. They were movies that you would go with your science class to see at the local Air and Space Center uh, that were about the space shuttle Discovery or Mount Everest, or there was one actually that was about Hollywood special effects that I remember very clearly because they remastered the opening scene of Star Wars for IMAX and it blew my mind. But the idea of filming a movie in IMAX Nobody had really thought of that before uh, for a few reasons. The biggest one being there were very few IMAX cameras that were even in existence, and the ones that did exist were big, they were heavy, and they were noisy, which are probably the three things that you don't want in a piece of filmmaking equipment, particularly one that has to move around as much as a camera does. And Christopher Nolan and his crew found out very early on the pitfalls of working with such unwieldy equipment. It was a five-day sequence, I think sometime after about the second day of, of using the Steadicam intensively. Uh, the arm actually sheared off, it, it broke off the vest and dropped the camera. Luckily Bob was okay and, and the camera was okay. The camera survived that encounter, but another one of the four existing IMAX cameras wasn't so lucky as Nolan and his crew filmed the Joker's chase scene with the SWAT van in the lower streets of Gotham. We did destroy one MSM. Uh, the problem with uh, working in the IMAX format is there were only four of these cameras in the world. Now there are three, and that, that was a little, uh, a little depressing for us all because we, we grew to quite like these cameras. But I think the piece of film is used in, in the cut. It was a very dramatic shot, but unfortunately the camera got crushed. IMAX is another thing that I think people take for granted now that we nobody really remembers just how big it was for The Dark Knight to do this. Now every movie is an IMAX. And IMAX exhibition was a thing when The Dark Knight came out. I remember seeing Batman Forever scaled up and projected on an IMAX screen in San Antonio, and that was a big deal. So there had been movies that were shown on IMAX screens, but the idea of filming an entire movie, or at least part of it, in IMAX was so revolutionary, and people didn't even know if it could be done. We've seen so much more experimentation now with how movies are shot and how movies are shown that it's easy to forget just how much that was a radical idea back in 2008. And I think that, that so much of why IMAX is a big part of the movie-going experience now goes back to Christopher Nolan's decision with The Dark Knight to do that movie in that format. So even as the movie was being filmed, the promotional campaign for The Dark Knight was already spinning up, and it is one of the most memorable campaigns, at least 
as in my recollection for a movie that I've ever seen. There were sites like IBelieveInHarveyDent.com and WhySoSerious.com that launched well over a year ahead of the movie coming out. They were doing promotion for the movie at Comic-Con in 2007 and sending hordes of jokers out onto the streets of San Diego. It was one of the first times I remember hearing anything coming out of Comic-Con. At Comic-Con, players gathered to take their first orders from the Joker. Working with players online, they scavenged for clues and found a big one typed out in the sky. Players hit the streets dressed as their leader, and Gotham City began to spill out into the real world. Their efforts put together yet another piece of the puzzle, a request to hit local landmarks in full Joker makeup. From London to the Middle East to Pennsylvania to India. In 2007 and 2008, I was a devoted watcher of Lost as well as a Batman fan. So that was really a golden era for piecing through different websites that were set up by studios to find clues as to upcoming seasons or upcoming releases. The whole viral marketing thing, which had started as far back as Blair Witch, but really I think hit a crescendo with this movie and with Lost, really was a cool way to engage people into getting excited about these movies because it wasn't just decoding different things or giving clues. The Dark Knight did things like you have to go out and take pictures of things and send them in, and the more people that send them in, if you go on the scavenger hunt, then it'll reveal certain things and behind-the-scenes pictures. And the one that I remember was the slow reveal of the very first picture of Heath Ledger in makeup as the Joker. And again, now we all know how great it is, but I remember seeing this image, which is a striking image, but wondering, like, okay, but what does that mean? Like, the Joker doesn't have a smile, he's got scars, does that mean that they're going to ground him too much? Is he not going to be the Joker at all? Are they going to change the character too radically? It was a really intriguing look, but I think in a lot of ways it inspired more questions than it answered. But there was an aura of mystery around the entire film. So it's not so surprising that that was the direction they chose to take with the Joker. But it, it is still so interesting. And and this is what I love about movies and how they're released and people of different ages enjoying them. Like There's a certain generation at this point, because the movie came out 12 years ago, that grew up with The Dark Knight as an acknowledged cinematic classic, a keystone in the comic book superhero genre. But there is another generation that remembers the before times, before the movie came out, when there was still so much that was up in the air that we just didn't know. And that's something that fascinates me and that I hope this show kind of helped provokes a discussion around, which is how we all experience the same movie in different ways and how how it affects our lives in different ways. Uh, because I remember the entire journey with The Dark Knight. Uh, and for part of that, a lot of it was just kind of going like, what is going on? What are they doing? For me, not a judgment, but more of a question of just not knowing what was in store for me with this movie. Production continued in 2007 and wrapped later that year, and fans got their first look at The Dark Knight when the IMAX prologue was played in December of 2007 in IMAX screenings of Warner Brothers' big holiday release that year, which was Will Smith's I Am Legend. And then fans all around the world got their first look at the trailer for The Dark Knight later that month. It's all part of the plan. Come on, Let's put a smile on that face. <laughs> I remember this trailer very well because, first of all, it was your first look at Heath Ledger as the Joker. And I remember going like, okay, that is different. 
That is, I wow, I'm 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 even more curious to see what is going on here. But it was also the golden age, and and this still happens. But but there wasn't really no YouTube back then, and there was certainly no 24-hour movie news cycle. Again, people would run to the blogs and run to the few established news sites that there were. Because I remember screenshots of this trailer and the one coming out after it of characters and 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 different moments. And Aaron Eckhart is that is the side of his face burn? Is this after Two Face and just these granular examinations of this trailer, frame by frame, and you still see that a little bit. But I feel like the movie, the movie news newsosphere, if you will, has moved more toward analysis, which obviously um, I know a little bit about that, uh, and speculation, and not so much about grabbing these little still frames and saying like, "Oh, what's that? What's that?" You still see, you still see a lot of it. Uh, but back then, that's really all that it was, was trying to figure these things out. It happened with this movie. It happened with The Fellowship of the Ring. I remember those trailers being screen captured and shot and saying like, oh, this is the Pass of Caradhras. This is, Ar- what's Arwen doing here? Is Arwen part of The Fellowship? Uh, there was a speculation and a wonder that came with movies that, were, that were, were coming out that you don't get nowadays because now everybody knows everything about a movie, except for a very select few before it comes out because there's stories about them and people find out things and there's leaks. Back then, there was this aura of mystery, this shroud that covered a lot of these big films that you just had to wait and find out about uh, until the movie came out. And, you know, I think there's something to be said for both things, but uh, I, I do miss those days where you just didn't really know what a movie had in store for you until you sat down and watched it. You get that with a few movies nowadays, but not as many as you used to. Following the debut of the first trailer, the buzz on The Dark Knight was really building. But then on January 22nd, 2008, the conversation and the narrative around the film changed forever. Actor Heath Ledger was found dead Tuesday afternoon at a downtown Manhattan residence. Police said drugs may have been a factor. Officials said Ledger had an appointment for a massage at the apartment, believed to be his home. The housekeeper, who went to let him know the masseuse had arrived, found him dead. Ledger most recently appeared in I'm Not There and was to appear as the Joker this year in the latest Batman movie, The Dark Knight. Keith Ledger's death was shocking. It, it really hit me like a lightning bolt because you go from this, this 180 degree turn of anticipating his performance in this movie to finding out that he won't be here when it comes out. It really changed the tone and the tenor of of the conversation around the whole film. The hype was kind of put on hold, and, and it really became about fans in the United States and around the world mourning his death. Heath Ledger's sudden death has not only shocked the movie world, it sent reverberations around the planet. It's reported the news caused an internet meltdown as millions logged on to read the story. Yahoo claims their figures rocketed by over 110%. The media buzz obviously turned from the movie itself to speculation around Heath Ledger's death, which was later ruled an accidental overdose. But of course, as happens, it seems like everybody who had a microphone and a camera put in front of their face was asked about what was going on. According to the report, it was an overdose of many, many different things, so that's too bad. Maybe it's the same thing. Prescription drugs is probably, in its own way, just as bad. I think the world is out of control. Like I said, everybody. One of the weird, I don't know if you would call it an irony or one of the weird coincidences around Heath Ledger's death that I didn't even know about until I was doing research for the show was that 
Uh, on the day that he passed away, it was the same day that nominations for the 80th Annual Academy Awards were announced. And one year later to the day, nominations for the 81st Academy Award nominations were announced, including his own nomination for Best Supporting Actor, an award he would win for The Dark Knight. Oscar buzz for Heath Ledger uh, was building way before the ceremony and even before the movie itself came out. And part of it was that we were getting a bigger and a better look at what was going on as more trailers came out, as the advanced publicity started. And it wasn't just the fans who were hyping up this performance. It was his own co-stars who, in publicity appearances for the film, began letting people know that they were really in for something special. Heath has really tapped into something here. Um, he's sort of, he's just tuned into a sort of a station we can't hear. Yeah. You know, it's very, it's very special work, and uh, I know I know that there's a lot of hype about it, but it, but it really lives up to it. I mean, it is an Oscar-worthy performance, and it would not surprise me if he doesn't get a, a posthumous Oscar. I couldn't agree nomination. more. Nomination, even may even win it. After months of hype and promotion, and the real-world tragedy that led up to its release on July 18th, 2008, The Dark Knight hit theaters nationwide. Would you believe The Dark Knight is playing in more than 4,000 movie theaters across the nation right now? And it's playing on more movie screens than a movie has ever played on before. So here at this theater, right outside New York's Union Square, they've had a showing every hour since midnight. The line stretched around three sides of this New York City block. But for these serious fans who bought their tickets weeks ago, a few hours on the pavement did not dull their enthusiasm. There are a few movies in my life that I remember the actual movie-going experience of. And The Dark Knight is one of them. I planned to go see it on opening weekend, but not necessarily on opening night. However, some friends of mine said that they were going to a certain showing at the Arclight Sherman Oaks in the San Fernando Valley here in L.A. And so I remember going online, and maybe one of the first times I ever bought tickets for a movie online, and getting the last seat in the back row. For me, there was so much tied into what was happening before the movie rolled because as a Batman fan, I was obviously anticipating this movie. I was so intensely curious about what what this follow-up was gonna be. I liked Batman Begins. I really, really liked it. Could this movie live up to it? What was Heath Ledger's performance gonna be like? Where did Two-Face fall into all of this? There was still so much that was yet to be answered about the film that I walked in really not knowing what to expect. There are turning points sometimes where you realize that you're seeing something really special. And I, I, I like The Dark Knight, but for me, I always, when we get to the kitchen scene, where the Joker meets the different mobsters, that is the point where I realize that this is not just uh, a good performance, this is a phenomenal performance. I know why you choose to have your little <clears throat> group therapy sessions in broad daylight. I know why you're afraid to go out at night. The Batman. I am obsessed with that scene. Every time I watch the movie, I can't wait to get to it because every little thing that Heath Ledger does in that scene fascinates me. The way he walks in with an almost mocking version of the Joker's famous laugh. Aha, ooh, Heath, ha, aha. And I thought my jokes were bad. The way he emphasizes the t on not. You're crazy. I'm not. No, I'm not. Every decision he makes in that scene 
is so endlessly fascinating to me. The only other performance that I can think of that's like that is Christoph Waltz's An Inglorious Bastards, which only came out a couple years later. I remember having that same feeling where I just want to watch this character for two hours, and I want to watch this actor inhabit this character because there's so much interesting going on here that I, I just want to analyze it and observe it. It, it, it. I almost felt like a scientist, like I'm just kind of observing a, a creature in its natural habitat. That scene is so amazing, and I remember the audience reaction to the, the magic trick. I'm gonna make this pencil disappear. It's, it's gone. They exploded, and that energy, I think, carried us through the rest of the film. And there is such a magic, and it's one of my favorite things about seeing movies. It's one of my favorite things about the shared experience of seeing movies, and why I miss movie theaters so much right now is that energy you get when you're with an audience and they're legitimately and genuinely surprised or impressed or in the the presence of a great movie. There is a palpable energy that builds throughout. And I felt that building throughout the Dark Knight. And that magic trick scene was the first explosion for me where everyone in the room realized, okay, this is something special. Uh, It is such a unique movie-going experience in my mind. And it's something that I, I will never forget. Another thing I love about it, beyond just Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker, is how they capture that dynamic between the Joker and Batman, their symbiotic relationship. The fact that the Joker doesn't want to kill Batman, even though that's really what he goes in there with the goal to do, he realizes that he's going to get bored with common criminals. He's going to get bored with mobsters. He needs this other psychotic. I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, no, no. No, you, you complete me. And that really is what Batman is at the at the at the base and the root of it is, he's a guy who dresses up as a bat and, and fights crime independently. It's not necessarily psychologically healthy. And I love that in the comic books and then in this movie, the Joker is really one of the only people that actually recognizes that and wants to push him to his limits because he wants him to realize just how alike they are and the only time that when I'm watching the movie when I watch it the first time and and every subsequent time that I watch it that any kind of real world sadness seeps in is in the final scene with the Joker when he says I think you and I are destined to do this forever you'll be in a better jail forever Maybe we could share one. There's such a sadness to me that there was no follow-up that was able to be done with that character. And who knows what would have happened in The Dark Knight Rises and how Joker would have played in if the movie would have been substantially the same. But it is so sad to know that we never got a chance to follow up on that dynamic and on that relationship because it was so well done and so well acted between Christian Bale and Heath Ledger. I would have paid to see 10 more movies just with the two of them. You're garbage. You kills for money. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. Ultimately, too, what really won me over about The Dark Knight was that, yes, there were some things that I thought were a little heavy-handed. The surveillance theme, particularly in 2008, I thought was a little ham-fisted, to the point where you have a character literally on screen saying, This is wrong. And I did have some trepidation in 2008 about Harvey Dent's role in the movie, that he he's two-faced so late and then he's dead. I felt like he was wasted. A lot of that was muted when I saw The Dark Knight Rises and how that film was about struggling with Harvey Dent's legacy and the exposure of what happened in the film. But in 2008, I felt like it was a bit of a wasted opportunity. 
Uh, but the dynamic between the Joker, Heath Ledger's performance, really the performances of just about everybody else in the movie, and the dynamic between Gotham City and Batman, the fact that you end the movie with Batman being hunted, being an outlaw, an outcast, I love that because that is so much the dynamic between Batman and Gotham City. That Gotham sometimes has to fear him. Gotham sometimes has to embrace him. Gotham sometimes has to hate him. All of that is how he operates. And I walked out of that movie on such a high because I really did feel like in so many ways it captured so many elements of Batman in a a better way than I'd ever seen before. So I was a huge fan of the movie. And a lot of the fans who'd seen it were too. I thought the movie was great. Really well directed, really well executed. Um, The casting was great, and I thought that Heath Ledger did a masterful job. I thought it was awesome, and it it was the best movie I ever ever saw. The fan reaction may have been expected, but what was not necessarily expected was the ecstatic reaction from critics as well. Christopher Nolan's Gotham City epic is one of the best movies of the year and should merit consideration for a Best Picture nomination. This is a rich, complex, visually thrilling piece of pop entertainment, as strong as any superhero epic I've ever seen. It's a great film. I say see it. In fact, see it twice. I would see it twice, and I'm looking forward to it. This film really is one of the great achievements of the year. Based off of this enthusiastic reaction for both fans and critics, the incredible marketing campaign, and the real-world events surrounding the movie, The Dark Knight went on to break the domestic record for biggest opening weekend, which had been set the previous year by Spider-Man 3. This is a watershed moment in cinematic history. The Dark Knight hosted the biggest opening weekend of all time. It's the the cinematic equivalent of the 100-year flood. And at 12.01 a.m. on opening day, it broke the box office record for midnight openings, well on its way to racking up almost $68 million, the highest grossing day ever. But people didn't just turn out to see The Dark Knight once. They kept going back, and they kept telling their friends to go see it. Less than a week, as a matter of fact, six days after the movie was released, The Dark Knight surpassed its preceding film, Batman Begins, at the domestic box office and went on to be the first superhero film to gross over $1 billion at the worldwide box office. I actually saw The Dark Knight twice in theaters myself, the first time I'd seen it on opening night at the Arclight Sherman Oaks. The second time was because I'd heard so much about the IMAX sequences and how you really had to go see it in that format. A couple weeks after I saw it on opening night, I went with my roommate to the Universal City IMAX to see it there. And it still is one of my favorite movie-going reactions that I've ever heard in a theater, which was, you know, obviously it looked incredible. The the huge, you know, I hadn't seen that the first time I'd seen the movie, but the, the, the vastness and the openness of the IMAX sequences in the film were so great to see. But I also remember when Aaron Eckhart first turned his face to reveal the two-face effect. I'm sorry, Harvey. No. No, you're not. Somebody, and I don't know who you are, anonymous person, but I will remember you for the rest of my life, a couple of rows back from me just goes, Nice! I guess he liked the look. At one point, The Dark Knight was the second highest grossing film of all time at the domestic box office behind only Titanic. Of course, a lot of other movies have come out in the 12 years since then, and it currently sits at number 12 on that list. But after a spectacular 
box office run. The movie was released on Blu-ray in December of 2008, which is how it started to make its way into my collection. However, I was not yet collecting anything on HD because there was a war brewing between two different formats for much of 2007 and 2008. There was Blu-ray, which became the standard for HD discs, and there was also HD DVD, which was manufactured by Toshiba. And for a long time, there was a back and forth. Some some studios made movies on both formats. There was the, the endless debate between which one looked better, which one sounded better. But it was very unsettled as to which one was going to end up being the standard. It was very obvious that there wasn't room enough for both. Warner Brothers was actually one of the studios that helped to break that tie. They came out and essentially said, we are only going to release titles in the future on Blu-ray other studios followed suit, and once that happened, once studios exclusively said they were going to use one format, Toshiba threw in the towel and said, all right, they stopped producing HD DVDs, and Blu-ray became the standard. That Christmas is when I decided to make a choice and jump into the HD pool, and so I put a Blu-ray player on my Christmas list. Uh, I got an Amazon gift card so I could have it shipped to my apartment in Los Angeles, and I think it was one of four orders I made on Amazon.com that year. Uh, one of the other ones was the video game Rock Band 2. Remember Rock Band? That was a fun couple years. The funny thing is, I actually owned this disc, The Dark Knight, before I had my Blu-ray player. I was in Arkansas visiting friends and family for Christmas, so I had the Blu-ray player shipped to my apartment in Los Angeles, but I couldn't get to it until I got home. However, my Uncle Charlie, I told you he'd be back into this story, he and I went to a Books-A-Million near where I grew up. You remember Books-A-Million? It was a bookstore. You remember bookstores? Those were stores that sold books. At the cash register, they were selling Blu-rays, and one of them was The Dark Knight. And because we had such a history with movies and had such a history with Batman, he asked me if I wanted his Christmas present to me to be this Blu-ray of The Dark Knight. And I said, of course. So we brought we bought the Blu-ray and I took it home and couldn't do anything with it until I got back to Los Angeles. And it was killing me because I loved the movie so much. I hadn't seen it since July. I was really anxious to give it a second watch. I got in, I I plugged in the, the Blu-ray player, I got it all hooked up, and I rewatched the movie, and I remembered how much I loved it and what I loved about it, and I watched it a lot of times after that, partially because it was one of the only Blu-rays that I had for such a long time, so you watch what's available to you. But it is a beautiful film, it's a gorgeous film, and the performances are so great, and I, I really fell in love with the movie all over again when I got it home. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Now this is a pretty early Blu-ray release, so there's not a whole lot to write home about as far as special features, but I've always liked the packaging. This is the slipcover. It's got that kind of lenticular feel. The disc itself has the Joker on it. The back is defaced in the same way that they did with a lot of the marketing materials where the Joker essentially takes over. Special features wise, there's not a whole lot on there, but what is on there is pretty interesting. There's something called focus points, which you can watch as their own, essentially a behind the scenes making of, or you can watch them concurrently with the movie and click into them when a little disc icon pops up. But it goes into different parts of making the movie itself. And there were a lot of things that I revisited that I enjoyed watching. Uh, Hans Zimmer's philosophy on doing the part of the score that he was responsible for. I didn't want to write a summer blockbuster, happy, indulgent score. I wanted something that was truly provocative and, and people could truly hate. You get to look at Oscar winner Richard King as he designs the sound for the Batpod. Chris had the idea that it should never shift. 
that it should just keep ascending in pitch like an unstoppable force. We had an idea to use a concept called a shepherd tone, which allows you to continually change the pitch of something infinitely and requires that the, the sound have a specific pitch. And it actually settles something that kind of became an urban legend, which was a lot of people said that Heath Ledger improvised the little pause at Gotham General Hospital where the Joker like hits the thing when things wouldn't blow up. Uh, that was not an accident. That was rehearsed to plan and choreographed, and there is a great behind the scenes about how that sequence came together. What Chris worked out is if we put in a little beat where the first set of explosions stops as if something's gone wrong and the Joker just takes a second to look around, surprised, like the audience is surprised, then the major demolition comes in and he jumps straight into the school bus. In that way, he was able to come up with uh, a practical scenario in which we could actually take a principal actor, walk him out of a building that's about to, to be destroyed and literally drop the building to the ground. The disc also contains the usual trailers and TV spots, picture galleries, and it has six episodes of the show within the movie Gotham Tonight, which were made originally for Comcast On Demand to promote the movie. They're a little cheesy, but it is kind of cool to see these canon things that were produced as a buildup, almost a prologue to the movie itself, featuring some cast members from the film. Well, my priority is to help this city uh, return to a time when it didn't need a Batman when the streets were safe and the institutions of government were right-minded. But of course, the legacy of The Dark Knight didn't end when it hit home video. As a matter of fact, going into 2009, the movie was seen as a leading contender in a lot of categories at the Academy Awards. And the question going into the nominations was, would The Dark Knight be able to overcome the stigma of the comic book movie? And the answer to that question was, uh, kind of. The Dark Knight ended up getting eight Oscar nominations, tied with the Sean Penn drama Milk for third most that year. Slumdog Millionaire got more. It would eventually be the Best Picture winner. And with 13 nominations, David Fincher's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button had the most Oscar nominations of any movie that year. Seven of the movie's nominations came in what you might call the craft categories. Sound editing, film editing, sound mixing, cinematography, art direction, makeup, and visual effects. The eighth nomination, of course, belonged to Heath Ledger, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actor posthumously. But despite these nominations, a lot of people were saying that the movie was still snubbed because it was overlooked in a lot of the bigger, more major categories. When you have a movie that's nominated eight times for everything from cinematography, editing, talking of course about The Dark Knight, then the director is responsible for that. How Christopher Nolan could not be nominated is also an injustice to me. I mean, here's a guy who put together this event movie, raised the bar of comic book films, the entire genre is in a whole new place thanks to him and his entire team and all these nominations, but none for the director. It makes no sense. This conversation was so loud and so ongoing that the Oscar telecast itself addressed it as part of Hugh Jackman's opening number. How come comic book movies never get nominated? How can a billion dollars be unsophisticated? Everyone went to see The Dark Knight. What am I doing you think is not right? In the summer of 2009, a few months after the Oscar ceremony, the Academy announced that they would actually change the rules for Best Picture, allowing up to 10 movies to be nominated each year instead of the standard five, which had been the rule for decades. And this is another example of how The Dark Knight's legacy extends beyond just its release, because 
Its exclusion from the Best Picture race was seen as a major motivating factor for the Academy to make these changes as a way to become more populist, as a way to include films that did well at the box office, that were critically well-received, but weren't necessarily seen as Oscar movies. This is how The Dark Knight changed Hollywood. It didn't just change the people who saw it or the genre. It changed the way that the business operates. Heath Ledger's victory on Oscar night 2009 was all but assured. He, he picked up every major award going into the night. It was a brilliant performance, and there was obviously added poignance due to the fact that this would be the first posthumous Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. And when his name was announced, he bested a really talented group of other nominees that included Josh Brolin, Robert Downey Jr., Michael Shannon, and sadly, another actor that would pass away just a few years later, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Heath Ledger's family accepted the award on his behalf. This award tonight would have humbly validated Heath's quiet determination to be truly accepted by you all here, his peers, within an industry he so loved. Thank you. Heath Ledger's performance was the engine that drove the Dark Knight, but the movie itself really was, in my opinion, one of the most influential films of the early 21st century. And not just because of what it did as far as filming and exhibition and how it changed the rules for the Oscars, but also because it opened the door for comic book films to be seen as a legitimate genre. And it's not fair, but it's true that before The Dark Knight, even though there had been big hits with other comic book movies, that they had a stigma as being for nerds or being for kids or not being legitimate, not being prestigious enough to be considered real movies. I think The Dark Knight changed that, and I think that when you look at the summer of 2008 and the fact that Iron Man and The Incredible Hulk, the first two films in the MCU, also came out the same summer, Marvel built their own reputation for making great films, but The Dark Knight helped to cement the legitimacy of the genre, which I think helped Marvel films and helped all future comic book and superhero-based films down the line. So while The Dark Knight, you can point to the tangible things that it changed, I also think you have to look at the intangibles and how it brought us to where we are today, to the movies that are hits today, and tracing it back all the way to this movie, showing audiences what is possible inside this genre. The Dark Knight went on to spawn one sequel, 2012's The Dark Knight Rises, and then Christopher Nolan shifted gears to help DC launch its own cinematic universe, serving as an executive producer on Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. And when you look at the films DC has put out since The Dark Knight, obviously to varying degrees, a lot of them have captured uh, box office success, critical success, uh, audience success, but none of them have come close to capturing the zeitgeist the way that The Dark Knight did. That is until 2019, when another DC film was able to make that kind of critical impact. As a matter of fact, it took the mantle from The Dark Knight as the movie with the most Oscar nominations for any film based on a comic book or a comic book character. It would bring an Academy Award to another actor for playing an iconic comic book character, and that movie was 2019's Joker. Really, I'm standing here on the, the shoulders um, of my favorite actor, uh, Heath Ledger. So thank you and good night. I was going to say this is where my journey with The Dark Knight ends, but I think with great movies and as a movie fan, your journey never really does end with a movie that you love because you're always finding something new. However, this is where this episode is going to end. 
Thank you so much for listening to the first edition of All My Movies. Again, I have to thank Christian Harloff, the Schmodown Entertainment Network, and Skybound for getting this show off the ground. I am really looking forward to working with everybody in the days and weeks and months, and if we're going to get to every one of these movies, years to come. One thing that you can do if you are listening to this at home, if you could go to the Apple Podcast feed and please leave us a review and a rating, that would be so helpful. Uh, that really helps this show grow as we're getting it off the ground. So if you liked what you heard and you want to leave some feedback, or you know what, if you didn't like what you heard and you want to leave some feedback, go over to Apple uh, and let us know what you thought of the show. That would be much appreciated. Also, if you want to show some appreciation for the Schmodown, there's new limited edition merchandise that is available for a short time. Uh, at the merchandise store. You can find those links down uh, in the description. One of the designs, and I'm pretty happy about this, is one that just says GOAT. And the O there is the the buckle of that championship belt that you see sitting behind me. Now, I'm not saying that I'm the GOAT. It doesn't say Dan Merle the GOAT. It just says GOAT. So whoever you think the GOAT is, if you want to support them and wear that shirt proudly, go pick that up right now because you're not going to be able to do it for very long. Uh, If you think it's me, if you think it's Rachel Cushing, I don't mind. However, if you want to wear that shirt and say you're the GOAT, get ready for the real GOAT to challenge you uh, because you're going to have to prove it. But if you want to support the GOAT, grab the shirt. Thank you so much for watching and listening. I'll be back next week with another classic movie and a very special guest. I cannot wait for you to hear this interview. I'm so excited. But until then, it's time to go back on the show. See you next time. Thank you.